0: Welcome to Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Evans, the managing director of Boston Playwrights Theater, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we'll be diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about the process of bringing a new play into the world. Joining me to co-host today is the inimitable Kate Snodgrass, Artistic Director of Boston Playwrights Theatre and Head of the MFA Playwriting Program at Boston University. Hi, Kate.
1: Hi, Darren. Nice to be here. Thanks.
0: For this, our inaugural episode, we'll be speaking with Eliana Pipes about her new play, Lorena, a tabloid epic, which opens Boston Playwrights Theater's 2021-2022 season on October 14th. Eliana is a 2021 graduate of our MFA Playwriting Program and Lorena was scheduled to be presented last year, but the pandemic postponed the production to this season. She is a writer, a filmmaker, performer, and force of nature. Her writing awards include the Alliance Candata Prize, KCACTF Harold and Mimi Steinberg Award and Ken Ludwig Scholarship, Leah Ryan Fund Prize for Emerging Women Writers, National Latinx Playwright Award, Doctor Floyd Gaffney National Playwriting Prize, two-time finalist for the Eugene O'Neill National Playwriting Conference, and I believe I have this right: 2019 runner-up of the World Toe Wrestling Championship. Uh, there's a chance I got that last one wrong. Anyway, welcome to Typecast, Eliana Pipes. <laughs>
1: For having me. <laughs> <Aliana>. Hi, <Dave. laughs> D- Did you wrestle with your toes? I did not. I think that's a, that's
2: a oh. new credit on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sometimes you can't believe everything that you read on the internet.
1: <laughs> Evidently not. But I'm so <laughs> glad to be talking to you, Eliana, especially about this play because. You know, I've, we've known this play now for well, well over a year, two, closer to, yeah. <laughs> but, but I want you to talk ab- about it in particular, because we're going to be producing it um, in October. And um, uh, so first of all, I want to ask you, uh, you weren't born when all of this occurred. I remember it very well, I want to say, but you were not with us. And so what... What brought you to it? What did you first, how did you come upon Lorena Bobbitt?
2: Mm -hmm. So I encountered Lorena's story for the first time, actually on a phone call with a friend. I was chatting with a wonderful friend who's also a writer. And, you know, it was like one of those phone calls where you're busy you're half paying attention. I think I was folding laundry or something. And all of a sudden my friend uh, was talking about this woman and this story.
0: For those who may be unaware, a few basic facts could be helpful. Lorena Bobbitt's story exploded into the media sphere in June, 1993, when she cut off her husband, John Bobbitt's penis while he was sleeping, drove away and threw it into a field. She said that he had come home drunk and raped her. Brought to trial for malicious wounding, Lorena testified to years of physical, sexual and emotional abuse she was found not guilty due to temporary insanity. John Bobbitt was tried for the rape of Lorena and was also acquitted. Now back to our interview.
2: This woman and this story about, you know, this lady who cut off her husband's penis and threw it, and then they reattached it, and it all sounded so much larger than life. And because my friend is also a writer, I thought it was a story that she was pitching to me and before I knew it, I was so wrapped, like full attention by the end of the story. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's the most ridiculous, remarkable thing I've ever heard. You have to write that. That's brilliant. I can't believe you just came up with that. And my friend had to sort of stop me and say, <laughs> that was real. I didn't make that up. That happened. <laughs> uh, and and I was so shocked. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this story has everything. Uh, and from there, I really sort of fell into the like Lorena Bobbitt Internet wormhole that that really exists so deeply. That was right around the time that the 2019 Jordan Peele documentary about Lorena was coming out. And so I was able to sort of like soak all that in and, and I was so sort of consumed by the story. And it just so happened that at that time I was in Bronan Nune's adaptation class. And so I brought this play in as my adaptation. It was very generous of him to let me use <laughs> Lorena Bobbitt as my adaptation. I know that it was supposed to be another play. I kind of stretched the rules on that. But I'm very grateful that everyone was so
1: accommodating and flexible. Well, you so have adapted it. It's very much like a, like a circus to me, um, uh, the way you've told this story. And there was a huge, massive media drama going on back in the 90s about this. And did you ever have any apprehension that maybe writing this play would perpetuate some of that?
2: Or yeah. not? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think definitely. It's it's sort of a question that the play grapples with. I think a lot of, you know, the, there's a playwright character in the play. And I think naturally that sort of invites a lot of questions around telling stories and authorship and, and who gets control of the narrative. I think something that defined Lorena's case was how little control of the narrative she got. Um, even as her testimony was being broadcast internationally, she still had so little agency over the way that her story was told yeah. um and and I think there's something it, it's it's of course a dynamic that appears in the play but I think there's something about um you know telling the story of Lorena Bobbitt as someone who is also not Lorena Bobbitt like it's it's complicated to tell someone else's story even though that story has already been told on a mass scale um there's right. still something a little sticky about it I wonder about that all the time and I grapple with that all the time and that that sort of argument and conversation with self is in the play <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm interested in exploring that that meta device of having the playwright be a character in the play. Um, I, I want to know, like, how did you choose to use that? And also, like, how much of you, the playwright, is in the character of the playwright?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that device is... This is the first time I'd ever written a play with a playwright character in the play. It's very Pirandellian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I think it makes a lot of sense for me and my style. Um, I've always been really interested in non-realism and I think... Meta. I, I'm, yeah. yeah, I love my meta-theater, Kate. <laughs> no, I really love my meta-theater. And I'm also always interested in sort of finding new formal devices or new ways to explore different forms of storytelling. So I think it makes it makes a lot of sense that I was going to bump into something like that eventually. Um, and the playwright character appeared the first time in the first set of pages I ever wrote, the first sort of 20 pages I brought into Ronan's class. Uh, and the playwright always came to stop Lorena from having to do her testimony on the stand. Um, that was sort of where the playwright character was introduced in the court scene, when the judge was saying like, okay, Lorena, it's time to cry on the stand, go. Um, the playwright sort of swoops in to save her. And I think that that impulse for the playwright's first appearance um, sort of sets the stage for how the playwright functions through the rest of the play. It's like she's sort of trying to protect Lorena from the story. Sort of on your point about the circus in feeling with the ensemble of the play and also the real life media hailstorm that rained down on Lorena Bobbitt in the 90s. Uh, the idea that the playwright is trying to tell this story and put Lorena back into the spotlight, but also protect her from that inevitable thing and also, like profit, like the like all m- trying to make her point and protect Lorena and um you know change the history right. uh, and I think sort of putting the playwright character in there gives us somebody with real stakes that we can attach to a, a little bit more than the Lorena Bobbitt that we know is of course not the real lorena Bobbitt. and I guess to your question about how much the playwright is me i think I think it's been different things at different points in the draft, but now it's sort of like the the playwright is a like capital P playwright hodgepodge of many things. <laughs> there was a panel that um, I believe the directing students got to go to. And so I got like back channeled advice from it, which is um, Michael R. Jackson, the writer of A Strange Loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which also includes a sort of like writer character. There's that sort of authorship component built into the piece. And he was talking about how he has come to see sort of using an autobiographical narrative as just one of many sources. Like using your own life as as a reference the same way that you would use research as a reference or the same way that you might use, you know, an anecdote that you hear from a friend as a reference. Um, And I really liked that idea of sort of equalizing personal experience as just one of many wells that we can pull from as writers and creators.
1: And we all have different points of view about our own lives and our and how we respond to various things, which are different than someone else might respond. And uh, it's all fiction. And all true at the same time.
2: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's all fiction and it's all true. Melinda Lopez had this wonderful thing where, um, when we were writing our solo shows, she was like, "I'll assume that anything you say is a lie. So go on ahead and like do whatever you need to do. Be as truthful as you want to be, and I'll just, I'll just know that you're lying, whatever you do." And <laughs> I don't know. I think there's something about that sort of plausible deniability space that's really productive.
0: Yeah, it's it's freeing. Yeah. It's
1: very safe. Did, you know, speaking of that, I mean, there's the playwright, but there's also Lorena, who you are, you're telling her story. Uh, and, and there's a reality to her story, but yet you're arranging it. You're telling it in a different way. Did you feel any obligation because of the, you know, the facts that we know of this case to stay with the facts or what what was in your head? Mm-hmm. I did
2: feel that it was really important to stick to the facts In the play, there's also a projector. Um, I, I, I almost said projector character um, because it sort of does feel like a character. But but there's a projector that's constantly flashing the actual facts of the case. Uh, and that device became really necessary because the whole thing is so larger than life. I, I think much like the mistake I made with my friend, it would be really possible to come see the play and walk away like, wow, the incredible thing she made up. Like, <laughs> if, if you don't know. Like, like, and especially towards the end when it comes to sort of like things that John Bobbitt did after all of that happened. It, it's so hard to believe.
1: It's very, yeah.
2: Yeah, so the projector device became a way of sort of being really clear about what the facts were, what reality was. Um, and I think that was really important. And then when it came to rolling out the rest of the information, that's actually something that changed a lot. Over the course of the draft, it used to be that at the very beginning, uh, like within 10 pages that you got all of this sort of like factual testimony information about the sort of abuse that Lorena Bobbitt endured. And then we took a sort of shifted approach where now the sort of opening of the play is just about the frenzy of. Oh my God! She cut what? Like, like the play starts with that sort of place of 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 frenzy and of spectacle and of and of shock and on. And it's not until the court scene that you find out the rest of that backstory. So it starts with just fervor, and then you get to the actual facts, which I think is actually probably a little closer to the way that her experience or the way that her story actually was consumed by the world. Like, it starts with the headline, and then you read the fine print.
1: It's so interesting. So, so what what audience are you writing to? <clears throat> That's such a great question. You know, there's those of us who lived through this time, but really it sounds like what you're saying is
2: that some of your audience is not gonna know about it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges of building this play was trying to think about how it could still, how how it could sort of lay the groundwork for somebody who walked into this play having no idea who Lorena Bobbitt was, and still also respond and be relevant for people who were there. Um, and who have full, complete memories of that experience, or, or maybe maybe a complete memory of an incomplete version of her story. Um, I think even people who were alive might have a lot, might be sort of surprised about how, about what they remember versus what they, you know, might come to discover the facts for.
1: Right, right.
2: And yeah, so I think that the play was sort of trying to straddle that line between speaking to an audience who might have no idea um, or like a younger a younger audience who, you know, has today's modern sensibilities and would like react with shock and horror to what happened, but then also people who who did know and who were there. And the play also sort of relies on this like millennial Gen Z chorus of young people who are sort of like tweeting about this <laughs> as they're learning about it in real time. I was going to ask about that. Yeah.
0: But yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there, I, there seems to be kind of a a love-hate relationship with these millennials, your peer group here. I'd love to Mm -hmm. dig into that a little bit.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that the the chorus is, I I think that the chorus is very much like a Greek chorus in that they are a mirror to the audience. Um, And I think that the chorus is a mirror to the 2021 audience in addition to the 1993 audience. Like they all have an appetite for the spectacle at the beginning. Uh, And they all, you know, the the chorus is really concerned with sort of justice and doing the right thing, but they're also not concerned with taking the high road. Um, I I think that they're sort of, or in my estimation, I think the character description of the play, the chorus is really aiming to be, you know, Gen Z with all of our strengths and also all of our pitfalls and weaknesses. You know, they, they are concerned with justice. They do care. They do want a better world. Um, they're also really petty and distractible and they virtue signal and they want to be right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> why, why did you use the chorus? Uh, it's, it's very Greek of you, I might very add. Very Greek. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, did that come to you immediately or or as you were writing, you you used that technique to
2: get something across? I think it's brilliant, by the way, but talk, talk about it. I appreciate it. that. Yeah, I think the chorus component was also one that was there from the sort of very first 20 pages that I brought in as a writing exercise. Um, I think a chorus felt really natural to me because of that sort of feeling of a crowd and of being watched, that feeling of frenzy. I think that a chorus accomplishes that really well or really quickly. Uh, And then (laughs) it's been so sad to do... I'm so happy to finally have an in-person production because there's a lot of overlapping dialogue with the chorus and sort of like split shared lines, which always got sort of canceled out on zoom, (laughs) Um, but it'll be really lovely. They can, they can do it now. So that'll be really exciting. But I always have loved the sort of like cacophony of voices thing that comes with the chorus. And the play also does have, I think, a lot of Greek components between the sort of like (laughs) phallus stuff and the like really active sort of presentation the chorus Medea is in the play right. um, Medea has also been in the play since the very first draft and so I think that all of that together seemed to really invite a Greek for me. we're
0: going to take a short break right now but when we come back we're going to dig into a specific scene in this play we're going to really get in there and uh, see if we can figure out what's going on in your head Eliana for one specific scene so we'll be right back <music> I don't know about you, but when I get home after a sweaty day of podcasting, I need a stiff drink or three. But then I open the freezer and wham, I forgot to make ice cubes again. Or I've got a tray of cubes in there, but they're stuck. I have to bang the tray on the counter, twist it back and forth, ice shards flying everywhere. It's a mess. But luckily, I've found the perfect solution to this impossible problem. Cuber. Fresh frozen artisanal ice cubes delivered straight to your door. With Cuber's easy to use app, delicious ice cubes are just the push of a button away. All Cuber ice cubes are made from quadruple osmosis filtered well water, locally harvested and flash frozen at the peak of freshness. They even have a premier cube tier where you can get extra large cubes, round ice balls, shaved ice or low hydrogen cubes. I've been ordering the round ice balls, and let me tell you, not only do they look great in your glass, they're perfect for sucking on. Every Cuber cube is 100% guaranteed to melt in your drink or your money back. Sign up for Cuber now and get a 20% discount on your first cube order. Just go to www.cuber.com slash Podcast discount code page 2021. That's C-U-B-R.com with an umlaut over the U. And we're back. Let's talk. I want to talk about scene six, which at least in the last draft that I read is where Lorena meets Amy Fisher and Mon- Monica Lewinsky in the nail salon that Lorena worked at. So I, tell us about how that, that scene came to be in the play. Is it a, a core scene that you already had in mind? And and I'm interested in your strategy for writing an imagined scene between these three real women. How did that whole thing come about?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, that scene is such a funny one. And it's one that I've gone back and forth on. That's another play that's been there since the very first iteration. It's so funny that those happen to be all the ones that have been brought out. Um, but yeah, I think the early impulse of that play was to sort of like build a salon roundtable of some of the sort of women that were so skewered by the tabloids in the 90s. Um, I think it's, you mentioned, yeah, it's Tanya Harding, Monica Lewinsky, and Amy Fisher.
0: Quick aside here for listeners who may be unfamiliar with some of these names who will not remember the details of the stories. Tanya Harding was a champion U.S. figure skater, who pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution after her ex-husband and a former bodyguard attacked her skating rival Nancy Kerrigan in January 1994. The story became a media sensation at the time and was recently revisited in the 2017 film, I, Tonya. Amy Fisher became known in the tabloids as the Long Island Lolita. When she shot and severely wounded, Mary Jo Botafuco, the wife of her lover, Joey Buttafuoco. Fisher was 17 at the time and ended up pleading guilty to first degree aggravated assault, serving seven years in prison. Joey Buttafuoco was later charged with statutory rape due to their relationship and served four months in prison. And Monica Lewinsky became famous for her affair with President Bill Clinton while she was an intern in the White House in 1995, 1996. The scandal eventually led to Clinton's failed impeachment as well as a firestorm of media vilification and mockery for Lewinsky. She returned to the public spotlight in 2014 as an activist fighting cyberbullying. And now back to the interview.
2: Tonya Harding, Monica Lewinsky, and Amy Fisher, all of whom were just really taken up by the press in the way that Lorena was. And it's so tricky because as a collection, they're a little bit of a fraught group. <laughs> like, what, you know, like, like the, way that, the way that Monica Lewinsky was famous is very different from the way that tanya harding was famous is very different from the way that amy fisher was famous the sort of the way that violence played out and in, in all three of those women's stories was very different um and and i've gone back and forth a ton of times like well hold on a minute like should should we sub one of them out like who who, who is is monica the, the person who doesn't fit in the group here is amy the person who doesn't fit in the group here and it's still something you know, I wonder if one day this podcast will be a, a relic because I've changed the play and this is the only <laughs> scrap of evidence left. It's, those were, I was the three people that they were. <laughs> but but it is a sort of question that I've gone back through a, a lot of times. And I think that even, even as there's so much sort of contrast in the way that their stories played out and, you know, what, what happened with them, I think that the unifying factor is the way that the tablets took up their stories and twisted their stories um, and so that's sort of why they appear alongside Lorena, who similarly, who had such a similar difficult experience um, with her story being sort of taken out of her hands in the press. So the tabloid fates, I think, is what we've been calling them um, in the room, back on that uh, Greek point of the fates, but but that like sort of cycle of three who understand this this thread through time of all of their stories. And I think they were sort of back to back. I'm pretty sure that either either Lorena knocked Tanya Harding out of the news or vice versa, like. <laughs> It, they were they were months apart, sort of, in, in that summer of 93, 94.
1: And all of these people are still with us, too, and yeah. have changed. And our points of view about them have changed and mutated um, as we learn more about ourselves and the society and them, too. Yeah. It's infinitely fascinating.
0: Yeah, it feels like, particularly uh, Monica Lewinsky and, and Lorena herself, have really... Made some efforts to, uh, as you were saying, Eliana, like take narrative control back mm-hmm. um, and and away from sort of the the tabloid space and into no 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 this is this is who I am and and um, it's not what you thought.
2: I agree, and I, and I think there's sort of a really interesting moment happening right now where we're seeing a lot of media that's interested in relitigating those cases from the '90s, like the Free Britney stuff and I, Tanya and this Monica Lewinsky thing. And then the other Monica Lewinsky thing. Like, I, I think there's a lot of interest in looking back at that time and, and at everything that happened and what the reception was. And, and you know, I, I think it goes beyond asking the question like, oh, what would happen if this is today? But but I think there's a really interesting new willingness to, to look with fresh eyes at the sort of like way that sexism worked at that time.
0: Yeah.
1: Indeed.
2: Yeah.
0: So, if you were going to say anything about your play that is going to be opening live to uh, audience members here in Boston in just a couple weeks, um, what do you want them to know about this play before they they step in, if anything?
2: Ooh, ooh. I think. I guess my my warning maybe would be it's it's a it's a lot of laughs. I think it's a lot of laughs. And then at the end, you're like, wait a minute, how did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that the hope is that, you know, I think the play is interested in using humor to satirize violence. Um And I think that's a really delicate line. Something that I've been very conscious of or, or aim to be very conscious of is sort of like commenting on domestic violence and all of the horrible things that Lorena went through without recreating them on stage. Right. Um, I think right. there's a really fine and tricky line to to engage with in a story about violence um, where, you know, like, how do you tell a story like that without be, being indulgent? Part of what was so difficult about Lorena's child was that there was such an appetite for her suffering. Yes. And, you know, how to engage with this story um, and with with same thing with I think Monica or with or with Tanya or with any of those people, how to engage with that story without sensationalizing or redoing the harm that was done to them. Um, and I think, you know, I, I certainly won't claim to be anywhere close to perfect with figuring any of that out, but I think that, you know, there, there has been an earnest effort over those two years of development <laughs> to, you know, find a way to engage with the humor around this story, to create humor about the way that her story was taken up by the media and also to sort of keep the play safe for people who have similar experiences or you know, to, to, to make a space where you're laughing but not laughing at like the whole punching up thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think the heads up might be that you know, even, even though it is a serious play, it's also a, it's comedy first and foremost.
1: That's really good. It's the only way really that we can look at this because you, the comedy allows us to be objective rather than subjective. And that's pretty much everything. That's a w- wonderful choice. Who do you admire, Eliana, That's writing now that um, that you would that you gravitate to.
2: Mm, that's lovely. I think. I mean, I feel so lucky to have been able to make so many sort of like playwright friends yes. <laughs> over the course of like attending BCC. <laughs> I think a lot of the sort of like writers that I love right now and that excite me right now are people who have been my peers. Um, Alexis Shears' writing excites me. Kira Rockwell's writing excites me. Um, and then, of course, like Kiri Shay and all the people in our cohort, I, I I'm I'm absolutely thrilled by BPT season this
1: year. Yes, me too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so, I think honestly, a lot of the writing that I'm drawn towards is is writing from my peers, which is a really lovely feeling to sort of have a, a community of playwrights that I'm, you know, excited by and then also among.
0: <laughs> yeah, you you've been on some I would say emerging playwright list so I'm going to say that you're an emerging playwright because that's what I read in the news anyway um, so tell us about that what is it like to be an emerging playwright in 2021 what does that what does that mean how's it going
2: my goodness <laughs> oh gosh I wish I knew what it meant to be an emerging playwright I think it's, it's a really interesting time to be in the theater I think I, I think the last two years or this sort of post-pandemic theater landscape is a really interesting different thing. I sort of feel like I've like crash landed on Mars and I'm walking out into a strange new land. It's really interesting how how much it feels like the culture around the theater has shifted in the way that those sort of like forced 18 months of hiatus have had theaters thinking differently about the sort of everything about running a theater from the sort of internal workplace practices to who the audience should be to the way that technology will intersect with their work or not, or video or not, or you know all of these sort of new conversations that are coming up. And it's a little scary, I'll admit, <laughs> to sort of like be, be on the precipice of all of these changes in the theater, not knowing sort of like which, which, where the stars are pointing or you know, which of these innovations will last. Um, it's, it's interesting to sort of be putting my work out for the first time, like this, it it's occurred to me that I, I hadn't had a professional production of a full length before the pandemic. So, sort of the entirety of my professional theater career will be post-pandemic. Oh wow! Which is just a funny thing. Like this will be my first production of a full length.
1: Well, it's going to be a full year because we have Lorena, and then tell tell us about Dream House and all the successes yeah. there. I mean, you're going to be you're going to be in the news. I hope not like Lorena, but. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to know you. So uh, how did this all happen? And tell us a little bit about what, what's going to happen this next year.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, my play Dreamhouse, which was actually the first play that I wrote at BU. Yay! <laughs> yeah, so really it all comes back to so the wonderful, wonderful program at BPT. <laughs> but my play Dreamhouse won the Alliance Candata Prize, which uh, comes with a production in the in-season at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta which was so lovely. And then there were some other theaters that were interested in the play. So it ended up being that the play is going to premiere at Alliance in January 2022. So really soon. Uh, and then the play will be going to Long Longworth theater in New Haven, Connecticut, and then to Baltimore center stage in Baltimore, Maryland. Wow. So the play will end up getting sort of like three productions in one season in three really different cities, sort of like all all across the East Coast. And, and so I'm really excited to get to sort of experience all of that. Will you be at all
1: the rehearsals? And is it a different director in each uh, uh,
2: iteration? It's one director, Lori Woolery, who will be, um, we have a wonderful associate who's gonna be sort of like taking the production to those two subsequent cities. And so it's sort of like it'll be the same production, I think, remounted on those different stages. Our our like little stage plan is so fascinating because it's like the three stages layered on top of each other because they need to make sure that all of the set work and light work can translate into those different spaces. Um so wow. that's nice. So the same cast. And the same cast, yeah. So it'll be a traveling cast. And I'll be in each city, I believe, at the very least, for like tech and and premieres. Um but yeah, it's also sort of a play about place in a lot of ways, like DreamHouse is, is about gentrification and about culture um, and about this house. And I'm really, really interested to see how different cities who have different histories and different sort of like, every city I think has their own history with gentrification and, and with redlining just because of like HELOC in America. <laughs> um, so, but I think it's it's gonna be really fascinating to see sort of like what the play means in different places. Cause I think it actually, means something different in a different city really yeah and you'll
1: get to read about it in all three cities oh boy this is exciting
0: yeah so scary (laughs) that is a huge opportunity it's so exciting uh and just it'll be interesting also to see how and how much the play evolves too uh over those you know three different um uh, production runs that you're going to be involved in so like that sounds like a well I guess I'll say it sounds like a dream, if I can use that pun.
2: <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, this, this is a podcast about <clears throat> playwriting. And so what we're going to do right now, we're going to write a brand new short play right now, live on the air. Uh, it's going to be amazing. I can feel it. <laughs> so Eliana and Kate, what we're going to do is kind of a dialogue version of Mad Libs, but that's probably a copyright violation. So we'll say that it's bad Libs. All right, and we have <laughs> an amazing um, co-op student here, Catherine Kitcat Giorgetti. She's an emerging playwright herself, undergraduate student. And she's written us a page of dialogue with certain words missing. And so uh, Eliana, I'm gonna ask you to fill in those missing words, sight unseen, and then we're gonna read the completed scene together.
1: Great. I just want you to know, Darren, I did not sign up for this.
0: All right. Kate. Just enjoy your, just, you can be our audience, right? So Eliana and I will read and you're you're the audience. Okay. I think this is how Tony Kushner works, actually. (laughs) All right. Here are the words that I need from you, Eliana. First up is a name.
2: Kat. I think because
0: I just heard Kit Kat's name. K-A-T. All right. Kat. All right. And I need a nickname or a, a term of endearment. K. An adjective.
2: Effervescent.
0: If I remember how to spell that.
2: I don't know how to spell it. Either.
0: All right. Now I need a candy.
2: Ooh, tipsy rolls.
0: All right. And now I need a different candy.
2: Jolly Rancher.
0: Uh, a food.
2: Beef bourguignon. Another one I don't know how to spell.
0: Oh, I love I'm just giving you
2: food. words I don't know how to spell at this point.
0: All right, I'm gonna spell that wrong too, but that's okay. We'll, we'll I really like it right. not
2: having to type the words. That's feeling great.
0: <laughs> All right, now I need a plural noun. Horses. All right.
2: I just don't remember what a plural noun is. This is, this is great, I'm glad we're doing this.
0: <laughs> uh, family member. Great aunt. All right, and now I need another plural noun.
2: Alligators. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, this is shaping up so nicely. I have to tell you. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, okay, we're almost there. We're getting there. Uh, adjective. Angrily. That's an adverb, Eliana.
2: It is. <laughs> Thank you for letting me know. Okay, then. Um, um. Red. No. What's an adjective? It would frustrated be an adjective. It would. At frustrated.
0: We're gonna we're gonna do that. And now a size.
2: Microscopic.
0: Exclamation. Dukes! That's old school. All right.
2: I say that one because it's old school. All
0: right. I need two, two more adjectives.
2: Uh, adjectives are for some reason. I guess the part of speech that I have trouble with. R- round is an adjective.
0: Round. Right? Perfect. Yes.
2: Round and sh- sharp.
0: Sharp. And uh, body parts. Toes. <laughs> I must have seeded that one earlier. You
2: started us off with it. We had to bring yeah. it back just for the knit storytelling.
0: Last two. Monster.
2: Frankenstein.
0: And verb.
2: Run. Is run a verb? Run is a verb. Great. <laughs> this is, before my next podcast, I'll look up the parts of speech.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to share my screen here. And, uh, and then, and then we're, gonna, we're gonna read this together. And Kate, you can judge it.
1: <laughs> I'll read the non-existent stage directions.
0: All right, so this is, this is a uh, play called Halloween Candy and uh, uh, why don't you take A, Eliana, and I'll take B.
2: You got it. <laughs> uh, come on, Kat, I wanna see what candy we got.
0: Hold on, Kate. I need to take my costume off first. It's so effervescent.
2: Okay, hurry up, I'm gonna get started. Yes, I got a tootsie roll.
0: Hashtag winning. Oh crap, I got a lot of Jolly Ranchers. Man, they taste like feet.
2: What a trade? I could give you some beef for your Jolly Rancher.
0: (laughs) Uh, Sure, but only if you throw in one of your horses too.
2: Fine, I guess I have a lot of those.
0: Oh, wait, this piece of Jolly Rancher is open.
2: Don't eat it. My great aunt told me there might, they might have alligators in it if it's open.
0: <laughs> I can't be that frustrated. I'll just try a microscopic piece. Gadzooks! Hmm, that tastes a bit round.
2: Are you all right? You're starting to look a little sharp.
0: That's weird. I don't feel any different except... Uh, now I'm craving toes.
2: Ah, you're turning into a Frankenstein from the candy. I have to run.
0: And scene. <laughs>
2: Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> it actually worked a little bit. I like that we went from eating toes into the Frankenstein component. Felt close enough. Excellent writing, Kit Kat. Yeah,
0: Kit Kat n- knocked it out of the park there. <laughs> Well, thank you for indulging us with that and for talking with us today, Eliana. Um, Do you have a website where folks can go to learn more about you and your writing?
2: I do, it is my first and last name, www.elianaprice.com.
0: Perfect. Uh, I cannot wait to see Lorena, a tabloid epic in person. Uh, Friends, Lorena opens on October 14th, right here at Boston Playwrights Theater, 949 Commonwealth Avenue. Tickets and information can be found on our website, bostonplaywrights.org. It runs for two weeks only, though, uh, and we do have reduced capacity uh, because of COVID. So don't wait too long to reserve your seats. Uh, You're not going to want to miss
1: this. You're going to be with us, too, right, for opening, Mm -hmm. Eliana? I will be. Yeah, I'm so excited. I can't wait. So excited to see you.
0: Thank you. So kind you. So yeah, you've come to opening night, meet Eliana. After seeing this play, uh, Kate, thanks for also for co-hosting today. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, though, Kate. Leave us with a little playwriting wisdom, will you?
1: The best thing I can tell you is, uh, playwrights learn what subtext is and use it.
2: <clears throat>
0: Amazing. That's a good one. That is good. Thanks everyone for listening in. I'm Darren Evans. This is Typecast. Today's episode was produced and edited by Darren Evans, with invaluable assistance from Catherine, KitKat, Giorgetti. The theme music is Off to Osaka, and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. This episode's parody commercial was written by me, and our playwright Bad Libs was written by Kit Kat Giorgetti. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theatre, visit www.bostonplaywrights.org.